Why do Christians call Abraham the father of our faith? Isn't he also the father of the faith for Christians, Jews, and Muslims? What about the book of Abraham that the Mormons cite as scripture? What does that tell us about him? Hi, I'm Yvonne Prent, and welcome to Bible 805. Today we'll answer those questions and so much more in week three of our discussion of Genesis and the foundational answers to the big questions of life. This week we are going to be looking at Abraham. But before we start in on that, let's review a little bit what we've talked about so far. We started out looking at God as the creator of the world. It is a world with a beginning and that will come to an end, in contrast to many Eastern religions that just have a cyclical view of cosmic history. We looked at how God exists outside history and how this gives us prophecy that we can test if God prophesies something and we know historically that he prophesied it at a certain time, then it was fulfilled later. This is a good evidence that God does indeed live outside of history. We talked about how he created people that he put in a perfect garden and they were supposed to take care of it. But instead of trusting God and doing what he created them to do, they believed Satan, who is a created being, and in so doing, they brought death to themselves and to all humanity after them. But we also saw how right after they sinned, God promised them a coming Savior. Then in the second week, we jumped to the story of Job and how he was the most righteous of men. We all know the story that he allowed him to be tested terribly. But we also learned from the book of Job that you need to read all of the book to rightly interpret the words of his friends, which God said were wrong, and that they did not have a correct view of why terrible things happen. Their whole belief system could be summed up by saying, if you do good things, God blesses. If you do bad things, he punishes you. And these things happen immediately after each other. And we learned from the book of Job that there is so much going on that we cannot see. We also know with Job that God never answered his questions, but he appeared to Job. He said, who were you when I created the world? And Job realized that God is God and that he does what he will. But after all of this trouble and trial, we know that Job was restored. And even though that might not happen to everyone who goes through trials in this life, we do know that we have a life to come where all wrongs will be righted and we can say along with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. Now this week we're going to talk about Abraham. Now if you're following along in your Bible reading, you're thinking, well, you really skipped a lot of stuff. Yes, that's true. I did skip a number of things. But the way I'm doing this is I wanted to talk about some of the major characters first. And then I'm going to go back in a couple of weeks and talk about some of the more challenging questions in Genesis 6, where there it talks about the sons of God and the daughters of men and there's all kinds of controversy over that passage. Are we talking about humans mating with angels? Or one Bible teacher even said, no, 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 they were extraterrestrials. And others say, no, that's just crazy. We'll put that off for a couple of weeks. We'll talk about the flood, the Tower of Babel, and a number of other questions that you might have. I'm going to do that week five. Now, I promised my Sunday school class 
that I would answer questions in general that week. So those of you that are in the class, if you write down your questions, I will answer as many as I can that week, plus put in some of this material that we haven't gone over so far. Now one thing that one person in the class asked me this last week, she said, I'm getting so confused. This was the first time she'd read through the Bible, and she says, I keep getting caught up on, now, Now, who is this person, and what do they do, and, and I don't quite understand this or that. And my advice overall, on when you read through the Bible for the first time, and for those of you that are doing that with us this year, is don't get hung up on the details. I pray that you, this will be literally only the very first time you read through the Bible. And I want you in this adventure that's going to take us a whole year to do, I want you to take time to just get the big overall picture. Don't try to understand it all. The Bible is an extraordinary book and you won't understand every detail on your first reading. But I do promise you that once you've read through the whole book and you see the story from beginning to end and you see how the Bible is a great commentary on itself, that will explain a lot of things to you. So just kind of trust me and relax and know that it will make sense as we go along. Back to Abraham. He is looked at not only as the father of the Christian faith, but also of Judaism and Islam. He's also prominent in the Mormon religion. Now we're going to first look at the geography, the archaeology that supports his life as a true historical individual. Then we will talk about the Christian view of him, then the view of Islam and the Mormon church, and then we'll end up with some additional comments about him at the end of that. Okay, let's first look at where did this happen. If you picture a view of the Persian Gulf and the Mediterranean Sea, Ur was just above the Persian Gulf. And then Haran, which is the first place that Abraham went to, you go all the way up to the top part of present-day Iraq, and you find the city of Haran, which is where Abraham and his father Terah stopped on their way to the Promised Land. And then you can drop down into the Promised Land, into modern-day Israel. Now, once again, we take it for granted in our Bible that these are actual, real, historical places. But it's not like that for all religions. But we do have that solid foundation. Now, even though we know many of these things took place in certain areas, the Bible tells us that these are real areas, for some of the places in the Bible, archaeologists did not discover them until really relatively recently. And so we did not know for sure if certain places existed. One of the most exciting discoveries of recent times, actually this happened in 1922, was the discovery of ancient Ur. A gentleman named Leonard Woolley, he was an English archaeologist, he excavated Ur from 1922 to 1934. Now some work had been done on it previously, but he is the one that really discovered the things that we look at today from ancient Ur, and his discoveries were incredible. Kind of an interesting little tidbit, the King Tut excavations were going on at the same time. This was an incredible time for archaeology. Now, as exciting as the King Tut excavations were, 
Ur was actually a much older situation, and it's a huge city. I have uh, that I'm showing to the class. I have an aerial view of the city. You have the large ziggurat, which was this brick structure that kind of zigzags up into the heavens. In addition to that, as they dug literally more deeply into the city, they found a section of the city that were the streets of private homes. Now, what's very interesting about this is they dated them literally back to the time of Abraham. And so we look at pictures of these and we literally could be looking at things that Abraham saw during his lifetime. We also have a number of things that they discovered. One of them is called the Standard of Ur. And it's actually two panels that are joined together. And these have, on the one side, they have pictures of the peaceful life of the people of Ur. And you see cattle and you see music and you see them playing on harps and you see family scenes and you see agriculture. And then on the other side, it's war and you see chariots and you see them conquering their enemies and you see them fighting a very interesting picture of what life was like. In addition, we have many fantastic archaeological treasures. I have a picture of Wolsey holding a harp as he brought it out from the caves and then the picture of it cleaned up and in the museum. Very, very beautiful gold and silver and, and precious stones. We have a queen. Her, Of course, we don't know what she looked like, but she's got this gorgeous golden headdress. A lot of jewelry from the site. And what I, I always find so interesting is ancient women's jewelry looks just exactly like ours. The necklaces, the beads, the earrings, the hairpins, very, very similar. You could you could see them on, on anyone today. And then little pots of makeup that look actually quite familiar to us. They also had, of course, helmets and daggers and various implements of war. And then one other piece that looks quite interesting, it's a, obviously a board game that they played. So lots of fascinating things. And one of the things that this shows us, of course, is that Ur was not this little background hovel that Abraham came out of. It was a very large, very wealthy, very cosmopolitan city. And God asked him to just leave that. And he says to go where he had no idea where he was going. Not all of it was beautiful. The pagan culture there practiced human sacrifice. And we know this because in the tombs, they, when they first discovered them, they found large rooms, one of them in particular, had oxen that had were pulling carriages and around the oxen there were their attendants then there were soldiers there then there were maid servants and women that were standing around obviously these were the servants of the king or queen who was buried in that area what was disturbing about it is they had obviously been killed where they stood they found these sharp objects, spears, or they don't know what, actually literally going through their skulls. So they, they died where they were to be servants to these monarchs in the afterlife. This is the land that Abraham came out of. So now let's look at his life. In Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, it starts out by saying, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger, in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is 
God. Now, it's, it's important for you to to look at, to think about the actual ruins of Ur because it was a very sophisticated, wealthy city. And Abraham was obviously a wealthy man. He came out, his family came out with a lot of livestock. And then later when he sends his servant to get a wife for his son, he has gold that he shows him. He says, my master is a very wealthy man. And he goes to this literal desert from this beautiful city. And I, I sometimes joke around by saying it'd be kind of like telling somebody to leave LA and, and go to the middle of Death Valley and just because God told you to. Physically and as a person, and he was an elderly man. He was 75 years old. But God said, I want you to go. We don't know how he came to know about the one true God. There are various fictional stories, but we really don't know. But he did that. He leaves, he and his father, they first go to Haran. When his father dies, he then goes to Canaan, where he had been called to go. Unfortunately, not long thereafter, there's a famine in the land, and he goes to Egypt. Now, this is where he commits one of his first really big sins. He says, Sarah, who is his wife, he goes, she's not my wife, she's my sister. She's not my, I don't know the woman, hardly at all. She's traveling with me. And long story short, she is considered an extremely beautiful woman. Pharaoh takes her into this court, and then God speaks to Pharaoh and says, you're a dead man. This woman is Abraham's wife, and so Pharaoh calls him in and says, Why did you do this? Abraham's going, Well, she's actually my half-sister, really, but she's my wife. And Pharaoh says, Just leave. Just leave. And so he goes back to Canaan. Now, he and his entire family are there in Canaan. Again, as I said, very wealthy. Lot, his nephew, is with him. And they realize that the neighborhood will not support all of their livestock. So Abraham, being a very gracious man, he says to Lot, do you want this area? Do you want that area? Lot decides he wants to go live in the area near Sodom. He does that. Sadly, we find out not long thereafter, he not only moved near Sodom, but he moves into the city. And this is a very bad thing because not long after that, war breaks out between Sodom and the neighboring kings. Lot and his entire family are captured. Abraham, who it said has 300 and some servants in his household, hears about it and he goes after him. He conquers the kings there that took Lot, gets him back. As he's going back, a rather interesting thing happens. He meets a character called Melchizedek, who is the priest of Salem, of the Most High God. He comes out of the city, he blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth of all that he has. Now, we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, the significance of it. But Abraham then goes back home, and shortly after he gets back home, he has a dream that's really a fearful dream. God appears to him, and he challenges God, and he says, You promised me a son, and I don't have one yet. God again promises him, and we're told that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now then, in his waking dream, we're not sure exactly what it was, a rather odd ceremony takes place. And what happens in this is Abraham is told to kill some certain animals. And this was this whole thing is actually a common practice back in that time where you would kill these animals, you would split their carcass in half, put one half on one side, one half on the other, and then 
both parties would walk between them and they would this is part of pledging a covenant that what we are agreeing to will happen and sort of a visual curse of if we don't fulfill this this is what will happen to us the interesting thing though in this situation is god is the only one who walks through it and what the bible tells us in this is that the entire responsibility for fulfilling the covenant that Abraham's people would inherit the land. Now he also tells them that they are going to be servants in another strange land for 400 years. They will then come out and the land will be theirs. But the entire responsibility for it is on God. So Abraham once again believes and trusts God. Now shortly thereafter, unfortunately, Sarah comes up with this great idea. Abraham might be trusting. She's not so trusting. She says, okay, obviously I'm not able to have a child. So here's my idea. I'm going to give you my maidservant, Hagar, and you can have children with her. And Abraham agrees, which he shouldn't have, but he did. Hagar becomes pregnant. Then Abraham tells Sarah, well, you can do whatever you want to with her because she's all upset now that Hagar's pregnant. And Sarah mistreats her. Very petty on her part, but she did that. Hagar flees into the desert. God confronts her and says, I'm going to take care of you. Go back to your master. Have the child, and I want you to stay there for now. Ishmael is the child. Ishmael is born when Abraham is 86. The years pass, 13 years, and we don't know during that time whether God spoke to Abraham or not. We don't know if he was just wandering around the desert. We don't really know. But when he's 99 years old, God appears to him again and says, walk before me and be perfect. Perfect in scripture does not mean morally flawless. It means be complete. At that time, too, he changes his name. Now, I haven't given you his earlier name so far in this because I would get kind of confusing. But up to this point, his actual name was Abram. And that meant exalted father. He now changes his name to Abraham, the father of multitudes. And Sarah, her name previously was actually Sarai, and it meant contentious. And we can kind of see where that name fit. But now he calls her Sarah, which means princess. So they have these new names. And then three visitors appear. And they go to feed them because they're being very hospitable, as people were and still are in the Middle East. And they are talking and they tell Abraham, Sarah is going to have a son. And she's sort of hiding around the corner and she hears this and she laughs. And they say, why is she laughing? We mean it. Well, now, kind of a funny thing, of course, happens later because she does have a son and the name Isaac actually means laughter. So her laughter was in some way sort of a prophecy of of what was going to happen. But they continue with their conversation and then it gets really serious because they tell him they are on their way to Sodom to see if the city is as evil as they know it is and they're going to destroy it. And Abraham has this wonderful passage where he says, well, if they're only 
um, you know, 50 righteous, will you spare the city? And they say, okay, 50, and then it, it keeps going down. And finally, if there are only 10 righteous, will you spare the city? And they say, yes, if there are only 10 righteous. Well, they get to the city, and there are not 10 righteous. It is a very evil, wicked city. Lot meets them. He brings them into his home. He shelters them. Their men come at the door from the city, and they have rather vile requests. And Lot protects them. The men are struck with blindness. They say, get any family members that you have to come with us because tomorrow the city will be destroyed. Lot's son, prospective son-in-laws uh, don't believe him. They laugh at him. The next day, the angels say, well, you've got to leave. And it says they're kind of hesitating. And the, the angels just take hold of them and, and force them out of the city. And they say, do not look back. Lot's wife looks back, and she's turned into a pillar of salt. They flee to a small city. They're afraid there, Lot and his daughters. They go into the mountains to live, and Lot's life ends up a really miserable existence where he commits incest with his daughters, and the Moabites and the Ammonites, which we will read about quite a bit in the rest of the Old Testament, are the two uh, tribes that are a result of that. Now, back the story changes back to Abraham himself once more you'd think he'd learn but he sins again and um, one of the uh, kings in the neighboring area sees again that Sarah is a really beautiful woman she must have been something else because he takes her into his harem but before he's able to touch her God again intervenes and Abraham is really rebuked by this heathen king for his lies and it is so sad many commentators say where he should have been a witness and a blessing to this man instead he's caught in a lie but God continues to be gracious and Isaac is born now after he is born Ishmael is now sent away but God promises that Ishmael will have many nations come from him and this is the origin of many of the Arab peoples and this is of course why they consider Abraham their physical father along with Isaac and the uh, Jewish people so things are going along just fine for a little while but then Abraham is tested when God says I want you to offer me your son your only son who you love as a sacrifice and Abraham trusts God he goes to sacrifice his son but at the last minute God stops him and provides a ram now why did God do this we don't know the answer. One commentator that I was reading, I thought he had some awfully good things to say, though, where he said that God knew that Abraham would trust him, but Abraham did not know how deep his trust in God really was until it's tested. And a lot of times we don't either. It isn't until we lose something or we think we're going to lose something or until we get to a really hard place that we can trust God. A current saying that I've heard, and I know this is so true, when you don't have anything else, that's the only time you know that God is everything. Not only did Abraham learn from this, but we see his faith expressed, and we're challenged by it. Again, like with Job, we never know who is watching, how we act, how we trust him. Also, at this time, God shares with Abraham a new name for himself, for God, where he now refers to himself, and he tells Abraham that he is Jehovah Jireh, and that means the Lord will provide.
First God provided the ram to save Isaac, and that was also a foretaste, a prophecy, if you will, of Jesus, the coming Savior, who would be the substitute for all of us. The story goes on. Sarah dies. Abraham buys the cave of Machpelah, which is still there today. They still look at it as Abraham's tomb. He gets a wife for Isaac. Abraham himself marries again, has sons, but Isaac is his only heir. Now that's the life of Abraham. And what does it illustrate to the Christian? Well, the key thing is that Abraham's life illustrates that salvation is by faith, not by works. Remember, he said that Abraham believed God. And in Romans, it emphasizes this in Romans 4, 1 through 3. It says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does it say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The book of Galatians, and I'll read a passage a little bit later, that entire book talks about the place of grace versus the law. And again and again, how Abraham's life demonstrated this. Now, it's important not only for the spiritual application for us, but I think it's important for us to look at how people view Abraham today. Many religions honor him. We don't have time to go into this in detail, but I think it's important to look at how Islam looks at him, and then just very briefly how the Book of Mormon also looks at him. Now, Abraham's life in Islam is extremely important, but he is looked at as just one of the prophets in a line of prophets that started with Adam and culminated with Muhammad. In the Quran, in Surah 2, 136, it says, We believe in Allah and the revelation given to us, and to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and the tribes, and that given to Moses and Jesus, and that given to all prophets from their Lord. Now here is the important phrase. We make no difference between one and another of them. Abraham is important, but he is on exactly the same level to Islam as, as Adam, Noah, Ishmael, Isaac, Moses, Miriam, which by the way is the mother of Jesus, then Jesus, and Muhammad finally as the final prophet. Now let's look at how Muslims summarize his life. They believe that he was, when he was in Ur, was appointed by God to eliminate all idolatry and to convey the pure message of Islam to the people. Now, a little kind of historical thing there, um, Islam was not even around as a religion until over 2,000 years later, but they put it back as happening back then, even though there is absolutely no historical precedent for it. They say that he broke idols as a punishment he was thrown into the fire, but he was miraculously not harmed. Even though it's not specifically stated in the Quran, they believe that it was Ishmael, not Isaac, that God asked him to sacrifice. Also, they say that in his later years, he actually traveled to Mecca with Ishmael, and he built what became known as the Kaaba.
They say that God made a covenant with him that he should sanctify that place and all people in the future would bow and worship there. They also say that at that time he established the rites of pilgrimage or the Hajj where you go to the Kaaba and that's where they circle around and worship it and that he did all of that in his lifetime. Now some conclusions that they say to uh, some quotes that they have about him in the Quran first one and this is the legacy that Abraham left to his sons and so did Jacob oh my sons Allah has chosen the faith for you then die not except in the faith of Islam this next passage is of concern to Christians because we see Abraham of course as a father of our faith and he is used and is an example of it throughout the New Testament throughout actually the rest of the Bible but in another passage in the Quran it says if they say to you become Jews or Christians if you would be guided to salvation you are supposed to reply no I would rather have the religion of Abraham the true and he join not gods with Allah what they're talking about there is they're saying that Christians in particular they when they talk about joining gods to gods they mean the Trinity where Christians believe that God the Father Jesus is God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are all God Islam does not believe that and so it is not saying that the same Abraham that they trust in that they believe is an important prophet that is not the same one that we believe in as for the Mormon church they actually have some rather similar things that they believe about Abraham in his early life how he was persecuted for showing people when he was in Ur who the true God was but they have an actual papyrus fragment that they call the book of Abraham this is part of their canonical scriptures the pearl of great price and they say that this actually tells the story of Abraham and how he was only part of the story he was fastened to an altar and the idolatrous priests there in Egypt attempted to kill him and how he preached the true gospel to them and it talks about the origin of the world prior to our earthly times and a lot of the particular really sort of odd beliefs you might say of the Mormon church what we would consider the odd beliefs of the Mormon church not wanting to be disrespectful there but the point of, of the whole thing is on this book of Abraham is it was shown when actual Egyptian scholars looked at it to be a completely false translation that it said absolutely nothing like that now if we historically analyze these three views the Christian view of Abraham was actually written down around 1400 BC this it was part of the Pentateuch Moses wrote that part of the scripture it agrees all the history in it agrees with Jewish history and as much secular history as we have of the time Abraham's faults were clearly recorded but at the same time he's portrayed as the father of those who by faith trust God for salvation apart from works now then in the Muslim view Islam's view the Quran was written in 610 to 632 AD that's over 2,000 years later and it's 2,500 years after Abraham lived and there is no historical basis for the stories about him in the Quran there's no 
um, history, nothing that shows that he was the builder of the Kaaba or the founder of the Hajj. These things came thousands of years later than when he lived, so there's, there's really no support for it. It doesn't agree with either Jewish or secular history. Also, in the Quran, Abraham is portrayed as a model for people to follow, and that might be a good thing, except you see it contrasts with the Christian view where Abraham is a fallible human being, and the whole focus is on the power and the grace of God. In the Quran, the focus is on Abraham and what he did. The book of Abraham was quote-unquote translated by Joseph Smith. It's just been shown to be totally false, and there really isn't any basis for any historical facts in it at all. Now, in addition to the historical concerns, let's go, go back to the Bible. Throughout the entire Bible, Scripture is consistent on the idea that people are saved by grace through faith. Abraham shows this. He was the start of it. He was chosen by God's grace. He did not lead a perfect life. He obeyed. He failed. He obeyed again. But God's promises were true because of God's character. He was blessed to be a blessing to others, not just as a reward for who he was. He is a father of our faith because the God he believed in, not just based on what he did. It's the same God that people trusted in throughout all of the Old Testament, through the New Testament, and the same God that we trust in today. The way I love the way it's put in the message translation in Galatians 3, 5 through 9, where it says, answer this question. Does God who lavishly provides you with his own presence, his Holy Spirit, working things in your lives you could never do for yourself. Does he do these things because of your strenuous moral striving or because you trust him to do them in you? Don't these things happen among you just as they happened with Abraham? He believed God and that act of belief was turned into a life that was right with God. Is it not obvious to you that persons who put their trust in Christ, not put persons who put their trust in the law are like Abraham, children of faith. It was all laid out beforehand in scripture that God would set things right with non-Jews by faith. Scripture anticipated this in the promise to Abraham, all nations will be blessed in you. So now those who live by faith are blessed along with Abraham who lived by faith. This is no new doctrine. We are blessed like Abraham was blessed, not because of what we do, but because of the God we serve. And that is wonderful news. Well, that's all for now. Please check out the show notes and other materials that I have for you at www.bible805.com. And until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are love, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.